Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. 14 years on, one can sadly look back at this devastation and havoc wreaked by the Northern Territory intervention, the suffering caused by the intervention on those people that the intervention purported to assist, to heal and to restore. People in the communities in the Northern Territory and elsewhere in remote Australia have experienced 14 years of discriminatory, racist exceptionalism. The Endless Intervention, The Perspectives of Policy Reviews. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Tonight we feature the third instalment of the series, The Endless Intervention. With a focus on policy review, the conversation considers the future of self-governance for Aboriginal Territorians once the Stronger Futures Act has run its course next year. Currently, prescribed communities continue to be subjected to coercive measures despite concerns they may breach basic human rights. So how have policies like income management and increased policing impacted these communities? That was the question posed during the online forum, The Endless Intervention First Nations Speak Out, which we've featured on this program over the past two weeks. The series was held earlier this year to mark the 14th anniversary of the Northern Territory Emergency Response. You're about to hear from prominent academics whose research supports the need for greater Aboriginal self-determination, as well as traditional owners whose lives have been transformed by the regime. John Altman is an adjunct professor at the Jumbana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Eva Cox is an adjunct professor with an extensive background in research and policy advocacy. Kendall Trudgeon is the former secretary of the Yolnu Nations Assembly. And Auntie June Mills is a Larrakia elder and traditional owner. She has long worked to build cultural strength in youth and is a strong advocate for justice and human rights. Let's take a listen. You know, it's not, it's not about what they said it was about and it's going to continue because they're benefiting immensely from the intervention but um, the suffering of our people, the injustice to our people, the human rights abuses to our people but these fellows that are doing the intervention are, are gaining considerably in all sorts of manners so we've had enough, we've had enough of the injustice the controls that run across the communities, it's uh, something that People in this country don't have to put up with, but we have to put up with it, and we have no say in it, and there's no end to it. It's disgusting, and we've had a gutful. We want something good to happen, um, and all we get is more of the same. It's disgusting behaviour and controlling methods. We've had enough. It's time for the government to uh, listen to us, get some, uh, you know, the old saying, nothing about us without us. So why don't we have people up there talking with government and further than that, government listening, listening and actioning. You know, if you're really serious about improvements and something happening, if, if you prove what you're going on about, which was the whole reason for the intervention in the first place. However, it was we all know now in hindsight that it was all based on a lie and it continued on. The minute it should have been the fact that when we found out that it was a lie, then it should have been, you know, disbanded. And, oh, gee, that was a bit wrong. Let's just uh, backtrack a bit. 
Australia's got to wake up. I know it's very hard to know exactly what the position is in this country when we're not taught. It's not in the learning centres. It's not in the schools. It's not people are behind the eight ball and knowing the truth about this country. But we have to, through uh, our processes, broaden that knowledge, broaden that knowledge through more in the schools, more in the communities, right across the board. People have got to know the real true history. I know we've been saying it for that long, but we've got to keep on saying it and we've got to keep on doing it because as much as the people from Australia, there's new new people arriving in Australia every day as we speak are equally clueless. This is really important because we're such a minority within this country and, you know, we can't do it all. And and I believe in people power to turn things around, no matter what issue we're talking about. Um, and we need everybody out there. We need the people to action things and to get up, jump up and down and scream and, and you know, get the government in a headlock, right, or an arm lock or whatever it is what we need to do. Um, and, you know, what if that doesn't work, well, something else will work. But we, we can't give up and we have to bring that message home. And on both sides of the fence, on the on the government side and also on the people side, the people of Australia, we've got to somehow up the ante in getting our messages out about the actual um, political scenes that we have to live with on a day-to-day basis. It's almost like, well, they are a law unto themselves and there's no stopping them, but we have to find the ways. I just wonder, and obviously hearing you speak, we're always reminded of the strength and resilience and power of our First Nations women. And obviously one of the things that the intervention claimed to do was to protect women and children. And I wonder if you can give us your reflections um, as a as a First Nations leader, a traditional owner, a very strong woman, somebody who cares about who's who cares about and works with young people. What do you think are the things that are needed to really ensure that um, First Nations women and children are looked after and protected? Yeah, well, again, it's a lie. Our women are powerful. We are powerful. We do have a say. You know, you say, oh, they need to be protected. Um, From whom, I'd say? Well, it's from your policies and your bureaucrats and your draconian ideas. Everything in a system is geared their way. It's very difficult for uh, First Nations peoples, the language barrier and everything like that. I would say that if I wanted protection, protect the women and the children, it would be from government systems. Over-policing, over-policing is ridiculous in the territory, as is everywhere. Over-policing is the problem. Black deaths in custody, all those recommendations that our people worked so hard to get they still haven't incorporated anything. You know, I wanted to see after Don, Don Dale, I wanted to see walk into that uh, jailhouse rock and see on the wall, phone an elder. Why can't we have a poster there saying, talk to an elder? Why not? Our poor babies in these um, institutions, you know, if nothing else, can't they just have a, an elder at the end of the line to just talk to? No, nothing. It's just systematic abuse when you say um, we need protection. The way that it was geared for the intervention was that we needed protected from our men or from our own community or other things going on in the community. Well, no, I would say that the protection I need is from this, uh, 
the bureaucrats and the police and the systems that govern this dominant culture. If I wanted protection for anything, it's from them. Just one final question. Obviously, as a singer-songwriter, you're a storyteller and we come from a strong storytelling tradition. One of the things that's spoken about at the moment is the importance of truth-telling and people are also talking about a treaty. From, From your perspective, what do you think is important about both of those things and do you think that they can achieve a better outcome than the one we've got now? Yeah. I think that's wonderful. I I will just say straight up that I'm not a treaty person. Uh, I don't trust the treaty system and uh, every treaty that I know has never been um, honoured. But I'm all for the truth-telling, the speaking about, the honesty. Um, Like I said before, people have got to know the stories about uh, this country, the real stories. So I'm all for that. And people have got to um, acknowledge the... This country is still in denial. It's in absolute denial about the truth. I would like to see um, more talking about the language that's used. You know, they say, oh, settle. Well, no, brutally invaded, you know, massacres, massacres. It was not nice, pretty picture. And all them people that are sitting comfortably in their homes that have um, inherited incredibly by the brutality that's been perpetrated against our people in 233 years, sitting back in their homes on their little blocks and feeling comfortable and and um, denying the fact that our people were slaughtered for their comfort, absolutely slaughtered and, and abused for their comfort. And they've got to know that. So, yeah, I think talking, storytelling, bring it on, bring it on, and, you know, we will find a way. For me, it's not treaty. However, I'll say I'm not going to come to your table and do deals with you and and beg to be a part of your constitution and your corrupt systems. No, I'm going to enforce the fact that this is um, my land, my people's land. We never see it. You are illegally occupying um, and you need to back your truck up, right? And I will exert my law. And I tell you what, my law is far better than any law that's been incorporated on this country since they invaded. The law of this land is my law. When you come to Larrakee, and even though as much as you want to deny me till the day, you know, kingdom comes, it's still Larrakee land, Larrakee law. And our laws have been there far, far, far longer than these imposed laws, which are changing all the time, all the policies and the things. Our laws are good. We are the masters of survival. We've proven that generation after generation after generation and when this whole world goes to absolute utter shit we'll still survive because we've got the survival skills and I tell you what people are better wake up and learn and listen because hey I will say it again we are the masters of survival and we are not exclusive people we are inclusive people when you meet me and my family we give you a skin and we take you in and and we are inclusive and um we teach people how to live safely on our country and we look after you. I say it's not about ownership, it's about responsibility. When you come to my country, I won't be bossing you around because just to be a boss, it's about protection and looking after and my responsibility as an elder to do my duty. Well, I tell you what, you've got a rousing, you can't hear much when you're on the 
on the Zoom, but if you look at the pictures, there's a lot of clapping and a lot of rousing, and I think you've really stirred people up in the best possible way. Arnie June, thank you so much for your wisdom, um, your insights, and also while you're going through such a traumatic thing in your own life, to take the time to talk to us about these big issues is really humbling, and we're very, very lucky to have you and your voice and your advocacy. So thank you so much. Thank you, darling. That's really lovely. Well, what a hard um, act to follow, but I'm sure Professor John Altman, Emeritus, is up for it. Um, Also such a strong advocate from day one from the intervention, obviously came from a place of working closely with communities across the Northern Territory with a great policy mind, uh, knew right from the start that this was going to be a bad idea. Uh, Professor Altman is Emeritus Professor at ANU and he is an adjunct professor at the uh, Jambana Institute at UTS. Um, He has been, as I've mentioned, a really vocal critic against the uh, Northern Territory intervention since it was announced uh, when he was still at ANU. Um, One of the books that he co-authored right at the beginning, uh, co-edited I should say, Uh, with Melinda Hinks and Coercive Reconciliation, Stable, Normalise, Exit, Aboriginal Australia, was actually the first book that pulled together uh, a critique from a First Nations perspective. And since then, he has continually published, researched, published um, uh, about the intervention uh, being one of the, not just the the, um, most active of activists, but also uh, really helping with uh, the um, detailed research he's doing into very critical issues. So um, it's great to see you, uh, John. So I'll hand over to you. Maybe you can start by telling us whose country you're on um, and then um, I'll uh, let you give us uh, your insights if you can share those with us. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for the uh, warm welcome, Larissa. I'm uh, currently in uh, Naran, uh, Melbourne, uh, on the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, who I'd like to acknowledge. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, the many um, communities in the Northern Territory with whom I've worked over the years. And what I want to do in the time I've got um, is just say a little bit about um, the policy history, the sad policy history of the Northern Territory intervention and how that uh, policy history uh, has continued to the present and is continuing. On the 21st of June, 2007, the Commonwealth Government with opposition support blatantly intervened very directly in Indigenous policy and population management in the Northern Territory, deploying its constitutional powers as well as its uh, fiscal and military might, using the pretext of universal dysfunction in remote communities, a national emergency was declared and the government deployed its monopoly over the supposedly legal use of force and violence to erase the privilege of citizenship from remote living Aboriginal people living in 73 prescribed communities that had in the past been government settlements and missions in an earlier policy epoch. The intervention sought to revisit and amplify uh, the earlier 
colonial attempts in the 1950s and 1960s by the Commonwealth to assimilate Indigenous peoples, some then still living at or even beyond the frontier, speaking Indigenous languages, largely beholden, as Auntie June said, to their own laws, their own customs, beliefs and values. Government policy looked to reform tradition-influenced behaviours and make Aboriginal people compliant subjects, full proper Australian citizens. This assimilation project deployed brutality, the taking away of children, the deliberate destruction of distinct life ways in the name of Western development. By 1972, this assimilation project had failed and was abandoned. One assumed dead and buried forever as forms of self-determination, self-management and community control became the basis for a more benign and humane approach. Now, one can debate the so-called outcomes of this new self-determination approach that was more attuned to the global trend to decolonise subjected population. So the Australian government was doing what other uh, settler colonies were doing internationally. But two things are certain. First, the Australian settler state and society has never given up on an overarching goal to assimilate, more politely couched perhaps as normalising or mainstreaming Indigenous people, at least in other decolonising places, assimilation is called for what it is. In the United States, they talk about absorption, and in Canada, they talk about cultural genocide. Second, self-determination was never properly resourced on any equitable needs basis. Despite the passage of racial discrimination law in 1975, the approach remained fundamentally racist. Aboriginal people in remote places were treated as denizens, as second-class citizens, with poor access to all services, be it health, housing, education, employment, community infrastructure. The Northern Territory intervention set out to eradicate the self-determination approach and unleash the free and unleash free market capitalism on these communities to be expertly guided by schemes to behaviorally modify and punish indigenous people by withdrawing rights by deploying biopolitical technologies having failed once in the northern territory the commonwealth was back for another go this time targeting not just individuals, uh, but also targeting their communities, their kin networks, and their organisations, all judged as failures according to the ideological metrics of the powerful. And all these individuals were classified as deviant, irrespective of their behaviour or of their local status. This was to be a once-and-for-all, do-or-die, big-daddy state intervention to eliminate Aboriginal ways and replace them with Western Aussie ways. A year later, an approach was introduced to measure progress to sameness, 
with unnegotiated, imposed, closing the gap statistical targets. And that was just a year after the intervention in 2008. 14 years on, one can sadly look back at this devastation and havoc wreaked by the Northern Territory intervention, the suffering caused by the intervention on those people that the intervention purported to assist, to heal and to restore. People in the communities in the Northern Territory and elsewhere in remote Australia have experienced 14 years of discriminatory, racist exceptionalism with state attempts to regulate all aspects of their lives, of those deemed unworthy, with the main triggers for such an assessment, that is that they're unworthy, being whether they're unemployed in places where only three in 10 adults have worked and where, there is, where they're assessed as conforming to Western ways in the upbringing of their offspring. A set of disciplinary measures have been put in place with the only route to, to liberation being conformity with settler colonial ways of being, with the only option available to resistors being exclusion, neglect and punishment. Both sophisticated and crude forms of surveillance have been deployed in this biopolitical intervention. People's expenditures are controlled and managed. Access to welfare is increasingly subject to draconian and onerous mutual obligation requirements. School attendance is policed by yellow-shirted school attendance officers and truancy officers. Community stores are checked by licensing officers. Housing is checked by tenancy officers. Social workers seek out children deemed failing to thrive to be taken to risky foster care outside community. More and more police criminalise people for minor offences. These are hyper-regulated places supposedly opened up to the free market. In saying all this, I'm not saying there are no problems. There are massive issues, but mainly, I would argue, caused by poverty and disadvantage, not by indigeneity. What has this crude and cruel attempt at behavioural reprogramming achieved as individuals, communities, organisations experience the intensification of the old assimilationist approach? In some places, there is better infrastructure, houses, schools, shops, even swimming pools. And some of this is funded by mining money from mineral extraction on Aboriginal-owned lands. Kids are getting better dental services, and in many places, kids get school lunches. But all the statistics are telling us that this behavioural intervention to assimilate, develop, close the gaps is failing. Unemployment is higher than ever. School attendance is lower than ever. Poverty is higher than ever. More than 50% of Indigenous people in very remote Australia live under the poverty line. Overcrowding in public housing is everywhere. And most damning of all, more than 40% of households report running out of money for food. There is hunger. People are dying 
prematurely in rich Australia because of poverty. The intentional, intentional destruction of existing institutions has been a disaster for the about 50,000 people living in remote communities in the Northern Territory. And there is no accountability for this, this disaster created by the authors of this approach or their political masters. Both sides of mainstream politics are to blame for this abject failure, yet neither are apologising or seeking the radical changing direction back to self-determination that is needed. Instead, it is still all about opening up Aboriginal lands for mineral extraction, training Aboriginal people to be precarious labourers, using Aboriginal capital from the Aboriginal benefits account in the process of looking to develop the North. Now all this is dressed up as co-design, the new buzzword alongside workability, reform and development. One is reminded of Paul Keating's warning, beware the whispered word workability. Workability for whom? Reform for whom? Development for whom? Co-design by whom? Some of this reeks of indirect rule, Canberra capture and deal-making with you northern elites to get Canberra's imposed ways. Some reeks of selective amnesia and national speciality, overlooking the millions and millions wasted and the harm done in the name of improvement and empowerment. Some reeks of path dependency, lazy policy-making, and a reorientation to new priorities like constitutional recognition and treaty making. Things can and must be better. Paradoxically, the COVID pandem pandemic has provided a glimpse as Aboriginal organisations played the major role in ensuring no infections and no deaths in remote places quite a remarkable outcome over the last 15 months. We've seen COVID supplements of people's welfare improving their lives, and we've seen less mutual obligation. And so people being at liberty to revive the old productive ways, and people have continued to demonstrate grounded resistance and persistence, insisting on their rights to live on and care for their country. To end on a positive note, because that is a pretty dismal story, surely we will not wait for another 14 years to 2035 before common sense, driven by political action and activism prevails. We need to empower the local in all its diversity, we as a nation need to fund remote places equitably, fairly. We need to perhaps now think about adding compensation for the rorts, for the damage that's been wrought on people since 2007, if not before. We need to stop wasting dollars on dogged maintenance of the stronger future failures and move to support success. That is evident that has been driven by local initiative effort and local organisations where they remain more or less intact. 
14 years on, enough is enough. I don't think we need to wait another year. It's time for change now. Wonderful, John, and speaks to the deep thinking you've done around this. Um, We're very grateful to have had your time, but also your insights and your scholarship. And of course, your very heartfelt commitment to, as you say, communities you've spent a lifetime working with. Thank you so much. It's now my great pleasure to um, introduce uh, Professor Eva Cox, who is one of those people you can say needs no introduction and you know it to be true. Um, I'm sure she's known to many of you. Not only has she, of course, been a strong opponent of the intervention since its introduction and with others like John has been at the forefront of using her enormous policy experience to deconstruct what was wrong with the policies from the start. One area where Eva's uh, being tireless in her advocacy uh, and in her critique has, of course, been around the issues of uh, the welfare reform, particularly the basics card and the cashless debit card. Eva, it's so great to see you and thank you so much for taking some time. I'm going to hand over to you. Perhaps you can start by just letting us know whose country you're on and and then um, sharing your insights with us. I mean, I'm going to come in here in a rather strange angle because I think that this is where we've been making mistakes for a very long time. I want to do something quite different, and this is where I actually think is, I mean, John gave us a very good assumption uh, of the whole uh, collection of all of the things that have gone wrong. We really haven't talked about what has been changing and what we need to change. So I want to start with a statement saying Western civilization doesn't really exist. It thinks it exists. It carries on like a two-bob watch every time it thinks somebody is challenging it. But if you take a look at what's happening in the world today, it is very hard to find a country which is being well run to the point that the, the people living there trust it. And I think we're into some really serious trouble broadly. So I think one of the things that we've got to do is dig into what is happening and the level of distrust. I did a whole lot of stuff in my boy lectures years ago talking about the necessity for trust and for the sort of goodwill as part of democracy. And one of the things that we really don't look at is the fact that Indigenous cultures are deeply based on trust. It is deeply based on beliefs. It is deeply based on responsibilities, responsibilities to the land, to our people, to the world in a very different way to the way that Western civilization, particularly with what it's doing about sort of competition and all of the market forces and the various other things, they really screwed things up. There's very few countries you can now say are being run well. You have to only have a look at what's happening in in Africa. You only have to have a look at what's just been happening in the USA. You only have to look at the way the countries like Hungary and Poland are fracturing and the various other things. Basically, we've stuffed it because of a lot of the things we've done. And a lot of the stuff that we've done to to the Indigenous people, to the First Nations in Australia, is a very good illustration of what we do wrong. So we either try and do what John has just done, which is outline to the government and ask for them or try and push them to fix the things that they've done. But they can't see that they've done anything wrong because everything they've done fits into what they're doing and stuffing up the Australian community much more broadly. You know, we've got conspiracy theorists running. We've got various other things going. The whole concept of social democracy is down the drain. The market forces are based on the fact that human nature is self-interested dead shits that sort of 
look to do, you know, only for their own advantage. It's got nothing to do with collectivity. It's got nothing to do with community. It's got nothing to do with belonging to the land in the way that Indigenous people do rather than the land belonging to us so that we can exploit it. Now, I know this is moving well outside what groups have been doing, but basically, and this is where I sort of go back to my own experiences, it is almost impossible to change things at the moment because we do not have anybody in Parliament that is interested in moving away from the discipline of economics, which is totally antithetical to everything that I think in, in its various formats, both Marxism and mark, marketism, you know, to creating a decent society. The word society doesn't exist anymore. And the one thing we can say about what's happening in the Indigenous community is a revival now of the social, the relational, and the importance thereof to try and make things work. And I've watched with serious interest some of the events that are happening when people are trying to get back to putting Indigenous ways of doing things back on the agenda rather than trying to do them within Western stuffed-up means that we're doing it. I think we've got a very real challenge towards us doing this because what, what we used to do, and I mean, I got into politics in the 1970s via the women's movement, I also have a background as a refugee from Hitler, so, I mean, I came in wanting to sort of work out what you can fix things for, so I became very interested in being a political activist. And we thought, naively, in those days, that if we actually presented facts and figures and explained to people where they were going to do things wrong, they'd fix things. And for a while, we'll give it credit that it did start doing that. I mean, you have to have a look at things like the Black Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter, the Women's Movement the civil rights movement and the start of the Indigenous Aboriginal movement in the 1970s. And we really felt we were getting somewhere for a while. There was a sense of optimism and a sense that society was actually on the agenda. And then these stupid bloody neoliberals turned up with their anti-government, anti the whole idea of, of anything to do with public services and any sorts of things of society, we were all individuals and that sort of really stuffed things up very badly. And we actually have been running in that and that's we've been destroying society, we've been destroying community. There are words that don't exist anywhere on either the Liberal Party agenda and surprisingly enough, barely even on the Labour Party agenda, which is totally focused on paid work. Paid work is something we invented with the Industrial Revolution and it's actually been quite destructive in terms of the fact that it moves away from concepts like obligations and skills and things that are being done for community at large. So I suppose, and this is a very brief attempt to sort of try and work out how we do this, listening partly to what other people have been saying, we know what's wrong. And what is wrong is the lack of the social and the lack of the, inter the concept of interdependence, the lack of community, the lack of belonging to land, the lack of respect for land. All of those things have been undermined over the past 20, 30 odd years, and they're still being undermined because nobody really knows what to do. You have a look at all these international meetings, and we've got environmental issues, which are hugely important and somewhere where a lot of the First Nations have done a lot of work, which would be extraordinarily useful to fix it. We need to put all of these things together, and we need to start actually looking at what we want, not what we don't want. This is the big error that we have tended to make over the years, which is pointing out the errors of people's ways and trying to get them to fix it using the odd bit of the UN or the various other things to try and look at the legal issues. 
it doesn't work. It hasn't worked really for the past 20 to 30 years. We've been gradually going down the gurgler in a whole lot of ways, and most European countries and most Asian countries are having serious problem with dictatorships and various other things. How do we actually get back to having a discussion about what we want? And I think this is where the NT stuff comes in very interestingly, because what was wanted there has not been met. I mean, Don's stuff, when he was doing the earlier stuff about the sort of, you know, the working with people in the various communities and so on, that was part of the optimism of the earlier years because we thought that things would work if we actually started introducing local control, uh, local decision-making, all of those other things, all of those community tensions and relationships that are being destroyed by colonisation and bureaucratization and marketization could be replaced slowly and by making small advances. And then we got screwed, you know, because somewhere along in the 80s and 90s, the market system took over. And by the time we got to the early part of the century, it was really in control. So, I mean, the attempt by government to do what they did do to the Indigenous community in the Northern Territory is a perfect setting for that. Get them jobs get them, you know, use the money stuff, get away from that, you know, take control, make them behave like good white people, and then we would be able to sort of, you know, assimilate them because that was obviously the best way to go. I think there's some good opportunities for us to actually sit down and work out what do we want. Now, that is beginning to happen in some of the stuff around Uluru. It's beginning to happen in some of the treaty making, although I agree that treaty making might spend an awful lot of time getting the words down on paper, but we really do need to change a lot of the attitudes to make sure that people conform with the treaties. That's going to be a really difficult thing. But there is much more work within Indigenous communities about how things need to be changed, how the language, the various other things bring up very different concepts about the way we relate to each other. Now, this is a big picture stuff. It's much easier to tell you to go off and do a survey. It's much easier to tell you to sort of collect some data. It's much easier to have a demonstration, which quite frankly, politicians pay no attention to whatsoever. It's much easier to actually sort of fill in your uh, your, your various petitions and your various other things and, you know, and get quite angry and chuck a few bricks and do a few other things. But we really need to use a lot of the knowledge that the First Nation people have to try and create a better Australia, to try and put on the agenda how things should be run, not what's wrong with what's happening now, because they're not listening. They don't give us stuff. They just think we're wrong because we're trying to sort of undermine Western civilization as you knew it as the Conservatives think. And we're undermining the idea that being paid, being in paid work is the ultimate thing. Man, sorry, Karl Marx, you got that one wrong. But I think we just need to get back to the idea that we all make contributions to society and we can all make other things, uh, other sets of relationships, that we are social beings, essentially. And Indigenous First Nations stuff shows that up very strongly. Very little that has come up in Western civilization in the last few hundred years does that. A lot of the emphasis that came out of the Romantics was very much on the individual. We need to get back to some of the basic ideas of what is community, which you have and we've lost. What is the relationship? And I just think we really need to pick up the fact that there's a lot of things happening 
And a lot of things have come out, and I like the point that uh, that John made about the pandemic, because it really did raise a lot of issues about collaboration and about trusting people and about sort of having public and local stuff working together in a way that could actually make things work with pandemics. I think we really do have to get together over the next few months and put up to government and put up to the people generally what we want, what's the outcomes, what is the society we need, not horror stories about what's gone wrong. People switch off immediately. But stories which says this is the way we can create something that's going to work for the environment, this is something that will work for the community, this is something that will work in healthcare, this is something that will work in education, and start putting up proposals. Because the one thing that I've learned very thoroughly, having been advocating of this sort of stuff for a long time is that they absolutely ignore everything we say. And I used to teach my students when I taught this stuff, the loose bricks theory of social change. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to say now. There's a million loose bricks in our societies at the moment. And if you want to knock down a brick wall, you find the loose bricks. And I think a lot of what Indigenous people could contribute and the people that have learned from you and the people that are learning other things that relate to it we could find some loose bricks and start building the idea of a society that's based on communalities, interdependence, relationships and fairness, and we'd have a hell of a lot to learn from Indigenous people. Well, thank you. That's always wonderful to hear. And uh, your tirelessness, Eva, is amazing. <laughs> thank you so much. It's now my great pleasure to introduce Kendall Trudgeon, who's the former secretary of the Yolngu Nations Assembly, a former and former coordinator of East Arnhem Mediation and Restorative Justice Centre. Kendall was also Yingia's campaign manager at the 2016 NT election. And I think given that we're looking for experience and practical solutions, it's um, a good time to hand over to you, Kendall. So in the introduction, Larissa mentioned some of my work, some community development worker. That's my profession. I've also worked as a mediator, currently working on some land tenure issues around uh, the Goat Peninsula, where there's a mine that's been there for some time, predating um, the Land Rights Act. I'm working on that issue as a sort of intermediary with some paralegal and ethnography sort of um, assistance to, to parties, parties being uh, clan Bapuru groups from and Ringage groups from uh, that area. Uh, there's multiple parties. And it's been an ongoing contested situation for the almost uh, the entire time of the Aboriginal Land Rights Act. So attempting to do something about it and help sort it out in an inclusive way, not in an exclusive way. And it's also about trying to get some practical recognition of the Medellin system of law. So Certainly in Arnhem Land, we have an area of Australia where, um, as of now, uh, there's still a system of law being practised and maintained to a degree where it, it is um, uh, right there in the daily living, you know what I mean? So colonisation started in Sydney and it's moved its way progressively west, southwest, and and then north uh, in the last 100 years. So the intervention, to me, is, is an ongoing part of that colonial movement. And uh, northeast Arnhem Land is one of the last um, sort of frontiers of that movement where you, you can feel and know and experience what happened in the south of this country today. I was living in the space during 
intervention and it was quite difficult to deal with. They changed a lot of things in a short matter of time. It disempowered everyone in the community and very difficult to do anything, sort of chopped the, the heads off any community action. And it's continued to go in that way. Um, John has mentioned, you know, and, and June mentioned um, the governance of the space. We have federal, we have Northern Territory, we have local government. These are all colonial superstructures on what is really there, the law of the land, the, the system of um, Jung governance uh, through aspects like the Ngara um, system of law, the Ngara Rom through Bapuru clans, through clan alliances, through eldership and all the individual authorities that make up um, you know, all this sort of governance. I hope I've been making sense at this, at this juncture. So this is a picture of where East Arnhem, Arnhem Land is. And it was a reserve up until, I believe, the Land Rights Act, and that's the rough area of, 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 that, of that reserve. That's the, that's the basic premise of Jungle Law and Governance. That's um, a publication of mine which tries to outline, a gen, in a general way, the Jungle system of law and, and roughly what is the system of law across Arnhem Land. So can we keep going through that quickly? There's a booklet there titled... Um, the next slide is about... Um, East Island Mediation, that's just a document title. That's one of my projects that I've worked with people in, in East Island land and through that project we, this is post-intervention as well, and one of the responses from the community was to um, try and work out means of governance and policing and, and dispute resolution that circumvented the, the colonial superstructures and we ran this project under... Mediation and restorative justice um, culture, um, but it utilised human law because they, they're very much, um, uh, would you say, co collaborative. The, the approaches are very similar. And so we could utilise um, those mediation restorative processes and empower human law to make decisions about um, criminal activity, about negotiations of um, any kind around dispute resolution. We could work with police to do that. We could work with government to do that. And we could work, most importantly, with um, younger frameworks of governance, so through the clan leadership, through clan alliance leadership and um, through overarching elements like Ngāra Rom. The Younger Nations Assembly, I worked with them in, when they established themselves in 2011. There was also a response to the intervention. You know, I've worked mostly in this frame where we're trying to uh, pursue some level of practical sovereignty while there's things coming from external parties like the Australian government in the case of the intervention, like the Northern Territory government in the case of the intervention, who are trying to exert control over the space. This was a, the, the idea of Yungwa Nations Assembly was to try and create an intermediary organisation that met sort of macro governance models, uh, which certainly the Westminster model and colonial model is, um, with what is a Yungwa model, which is a a like a, a power dispersed model. Um, it's a decentralised model. And so we were trying to um, establish a body that could be a gateway between the two because for some reason, um, you know, the Westminster system does find it hard to see anything that's not like itself. So in terms of policy, my work and um, what I hope is, what I would suggest with people like in terms of policy suggestion is, is actually I, I want to aim that at, at, at the at the governing unit of, of Arnhem Land, the, the, the people of Arnhem Land, for me, the policy agenda needs to 
the response needs to be about recognition of law. So when we're balancing this conversation of, like, do we want treaty or do we want um, um, something else, um, what we actually all we're all pretty much united about is like self determination and sovereignty, and a mainstay in achieving those things is, is re empowering um, the system of, of governance and the system of law, the rule of law of the land. And this is being undermined through all the aspects of the intervention in an ongoing way and, and all the things that have been mentioned through Eva and John and um, June before them in practical ways. The other part that I would be highlighting is policy necessity is to move forward in self-policing, um, justice and dispute resolution. So this has been taken away in, in more than ever through the intervention. There's more police than ever in, in Arnhem Land. Um, it was a big um, push, obviously, in that process. And, and they aren't bringing peace to the communities. They're bringing um, conflict and dispute. Um, they're bringing a, super, a superstructure layer of things that make it hard for elders and, and the units of governance to respond to their own um, needs around policing and justice and dispute resolution. The other policy agenda I think that needs to be you know, if I was an advisor, you know what I mean, to elders of, of, of Arnhem Land is to say, um, and of course the people are looking at these things, is, is the economic circumstances and, and what's been taken away in an increasing way from the, um, since the intervention is, is self-determined business and, and being able to make um, agreements from, from the ground with other people who want to partner in business or want to make things possible. So everyone needs to be able to make agreements that are honoured and that, that are binding to to get on economically. And this is this is being reversed in Arnhem Land, not through any laws currently per se. Like there's there is some specific things from the intervention. Um, they changed some of the land rights act, which have, have but nothing. They haven't really taken away any of the base. Um, Things one, so say through the um, Aboriginal Land Rights Act, but what has happened is the administrative um, function, um, the, the the push from from the federal government for you know developing the north has, has opened up um, an, an intent to do things more quickly, and 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 as a result, it's getting sloppy, um, where decisions are being made that override um, who actual owners are of land. Um, and who is properly being consulted about land. And so with that comes a huge issue around land tenure. Um, but so those are the three policy areas like of, of response. And I, I think like I've offered, um, so in the community of Arnhem Land, like there has obviously been some of those things. I've only offered the things that I've been involved with, with Human Nation Assembly, um, East Island Mediation, and, and currently we're working on some stuff in go with, with land tenure, but there's obviously other people doing other things. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm fo- trying to focus in on policy from the ground and and how that might meet some of the policy, particularly people advocating from that colonial space, um, to get some of that activity that's happening through the colonial world directed to proper avenues. 
That's the former Secretary of the Yolngu Nations Assembly, Kendall Trudgeon. You've also heard from Larrakia Elder and traditional owner, Auntie June Mills, Adjunct Professor at the Jumbana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, John Altman, and Adjunct Professor Eva Cox. They were taking part in the series of online forums, The Endless Intervention, First Nations Speak Out, held earlier this year to mark the 14th anniversary of the Northern Territory Emergency Response. It was organised by Stop the Intervention Sydney, Intervention Rollback Action Group, Mapartway, Alice Springs, and Concerned Australians. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we explore the theme of justice in the public health sector and what it looks like for First Nations people. I'm sure, you know, many people online would agree that, you know, many of us are subjected to a profiling lens for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Too often that lens, it occurs in a very harmful way and most times it's a fatal way. So health injustice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the way I see it, it's evident in the numbers the high level of illness experienced, the preventable deaths, the lowest service access, but it's also evident in how we feel. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.